Last Sunday morning I preached for the first time in almost a month after being in Canada and then having my appendectomy and addressed a section of James 4 where he says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. It was a passage that I've been thinking about a lot recently in view of my appendicitis which came out of nowhere and took this season of my life in a direction I didn't anticipate. And in God's providence, I was already previously scheduled for a week off this coming week. And so I, I won't be preaching uh, next Sunday. And uh, that timing is great, by the way, because it's, the last couple weeks have been a bit of a push to get back to work uh, so quickly after surgery and get back to preaching. So a week of rest is most welcome right now. But in any case, I didn't think that it was worthwhile to jump right back into Revelation just for one week this morning. And um, so basically, I decided this morning to preach on this section that I just read for you, Hebrews 2, 5 to 18, which has, is another passage that has been in my thoughts lately, or, or I should say more accurately, some of, the content, some of the concepts contained therein have been in my thoughts lately. Specifically, that Jesus was made like us in every respect and lived his life his earthly life as a real, bona fide human being. This passage tells us that he can, therefore, relate to us. And I, I hope and trust that it will be encouraging and helpful to us this morning. So let's first look at the context of this passage. Basically, the book of Hebrews is pretty much in the form of a sermon, believe it or not. You think my sermons are complex? <laughs> then you should go read Hebrews. And imagine just hearing that once all the way through and just try to, try to follow. Okay? It's, it's, it's very logical. It's very coherent. But it's very, very dense. And I think, frankly, it would have been tough to hear that uh, through the ear as opposed to have the opportunity to study it at length on the page. But basically it's in the form of a sermon and the, the main thrust of Hebrews is to show us the superiority of Christ Jesus in various ways and the fulfillment that Christ Jesus makes of various Old Testament types and shadows. So Hebrews is a very Christological, Christocentric book showing us the superiority of Christ and how Christ is the telos, or the, the end, the goal, the destination of all of Scripture and all of redemptive history, really. So it's this Christocentric, Christotelic book. And in Hebrews 1, the author, who is disputed, by the way, some people think it was Paul, somebody, some people think it was someone else. For our purposes this morning, it's neither here nor there, so I won't get into that. But in Hebrews chapter 1, the author begins showing the superiority of Christ over angels. And so he's in the midst of showing the superiority of Jesus over angels when we come to our section this morning, Hebrews 2, 5 to 18. So this is why it opens, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. In other, in other words, Jesus is better in that God has subjected the world to come to Jesus, not to angels. So Jesus is better than angels. This is basically what's going on here. Let's look here at the first assertion of this passage, that God has subjected 
to Jesus the world to come. That's implicit in this statement in verse 5. Even though what it's saying is it's not to angels that God has subjected the world to come. The implication is it's to, as we go on, it's to man and namely Jesus that God has subjected the world to come. And so this passage of Scripture takes this citation from Psalm 8, which is found in verses 6 to 8 of Hebrews 2, and it goes, Jesus is the fulfillment of this. So God's plan is not that angels rule over the world to come. God's plan is that man rules over the world to come. That's latent in uh, this section of text here. That, and it's latent even in Psalm 8, really. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Even if you didn't read Hebrews 2 and you just read Psalm 8, you could get the idea that God is going to put everything under the feet of a man. That's already there in... Did I say Hebrews 8? That's already there in Psalm 8. Alright? So when we come to Hebrews 2 and it references Psalm 8, what Hebrews 2 does is it tells us explicitly that this statement in Psalm 8 comes to fulfillment in and through not just any man or not just mankind in general, but this paradigm that we're introduced to in Psalm 8 comes to fulfillment in and through Jesus. Now, in putting everything in subjection to Him, this is verse 8, now, in putting everything in subjection to man, He left nothing outside His control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him, that's man, but we see Him who was for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So what Hebrews 2 does is it takes the language of Psalm 8 and it says, look how Jesus fulfills this. He was made for a little while lower than the angels, but now He has been crowned with glory and honor. This is the trajectory of human history, and this is the trajectory of the work of Jesus. Theologians speak about Jesus' humiliation and His exaltation. His humiliation being that He humbled Himself, as Philippians tells us, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So not just any death, but the worst kind of death, the lowest kind of death, death on the cross. This is how low Jesus went. And then Philippians 2 goes on, and it tells us, Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus 
experiences humiliation where he is made lower than the angels, where Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who was, as the Creed says, begotten, not made, eternally existent, co-equal with the Father, takes to himself a nature which is lower than the angels. This is profound already. Just literally the incarnation is profound humiliation. In fact, one theologian has said that there is a greater gap between, or sorry, there is a greater humiliation between, let me say this again, I'm getting, it's such an exciting thing that I'm stumbling over my words. It is more humbling for God to become man than God having already become man to die on a cross. Think about that. That when we think about the humiliation of Jesus, we typically think of the cross. But for the eternal Son of God to take to Himself a nature which is lower than the angels is a bigger gap, is a bigger jump, that's what I was trying to say, than the gap between being a man and being crucified. So Jesus moves in this downward direction and takes to Himself a nature which is lower than the angels. And he lives this life obediently. He became obedient. Right? He was born of woman, born under the law. To redeem those who are under the law. Which is why he became obedient even to death on the cross. So that as our passage says here, that he might taste death for everyone. In, order, in other words, this is for our salvation. For the salvation of mankind is why Jesus took to himself a nature which is lower than the angels and became obedient to death on a cross. This was the mission which he was given. This is not all in Hebrews chapter 2, but biblically speaking, when we look at the paradigm, God the Father sent Jesus, right? God so loved the world that he gave, right? Or Jesus says, for this reason I was sent into the world. You see this all over the place. Jesus came on a mission at His Father's behest. He had a job to do. And when He became obedient, even to the point of death, and moreover, death on a cross, when Jesus said, it is finished, His mission was accomplished. And therefore, He has been highly exalted. This is the reward that he was working towards and looking forward to, to fulfill the work that he had done and to return to the glory that he had with the Father before all things. This is what he tells us in John's Gospel. Alright? And, moreover, in fulfilling this mission and returning to the Father's right hand, he, as this passage tells us, brings many sons to glory. And so, not only... Getting back to the main idea of the passage that we're looking at today. Not only are we saved, but there is a new world coming. A new heavens, a new earth, over which this Messiah, who has finished His work, will rule and reign. And so, the world to come has been subjected to this Jesus. Alright? The first assertion of this passage is that God has subjected to Jesus... The world to come. Not to angels. To Jesus. Therefore Jesus is superior to the angels. This is how it fits in the broader context of what's happening in Hebrews. 
The second assertion of this passage, we've already alluded to it and touched on it, is that the subjection of the world comes after humility and suffering. The subjection of the world to Jesus does not happen immediately in a flash, bypassing humiliation and suffering. But Jesus has to go through humiliation and suffering in order to have the world to come subjected to Him. Two reasons why God's plan involved Jesus' humility and suffering. First of all, as I already said, verse 9 tells us, one of the reasons why Jesus had to be made a little lower than the angels is that He might taste death for everyone. Or in other words, in the place of everyone. That's what for means. Right? Now, this is a passage that's often used to defend the doctrine of unlimited atonement, that Jesus died equally in the same way for everyone. But I would simply ask this, are there people who taste death themselves? Well, yeah, obviously. Which means that Jesus didn't take away death for each and every person without exception, right? But what's going on here is that this is basically explaining to us that Jesus came to be the only Savior for everyone. There is no other Savior. Either you're going to taste death or a Savior is going to taste death for you. And there is no other Savior but Jesus to taste death for you. And so Jesus came to taste death for everyone, right? Whoever believes will not perish, but have everlasting life, right? But it's clear, just incidentally, this is not the main point of the passage, but it's just clear that obviously if you say, well, he drank the cup of poison for you, right? Or for everyone, but then a bunch of people still drink the cup of poison. It's clear that that cup wasn't previously emptied on behalf of the people who end up drinking the cup that was supposedly drank. Right? Moving on though, because that's not the main point of this sermon. Jesus had to come and substitute himself in the place of sinners to live righteously for us, to be born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. Jesus had to bear the wrath that we deserved in order that the wrath would be turned away from us. This is called propitiation, and we see this word come up again in verse 17. Jesus became a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is a wrath-diverting, wrath-bearing sacrifice that takes it in the place of another. And Jesus is the propitiation, as it says here, for the sins of the people. So this is, I would say, a pretty familiar reason why God's plan involved Jesus' humility and suffering. If I were to ask you, why did Jesus have to be humbled, take on a nature which was lower than the angels, go to the cross, um, and die? And I said, why did He have to do that? Probably most of you would, would give this answer, right? In order that He might taste death for everyone in order that He might make propitiation. In other words, that we would be saved, right? So that there would be uh, 
a savior for the world, that atonement would be made, that there would be a suitable sacrifice to turn God's wrath away from us, so that there would be a righteousness that we could lay hold of by faith, and so be clothed with a righteousness that we need in order to justify us. This is why Jesus had to take on a nature that was a little lower than the angels. And this passage affirms that. And it says, yeah, that's one of the reasons, right? So that he might taste death for everyone. That he might make propitiation for the sins of the people. Alright, but there's a second reason in this passage why God's plan involved Jesus' humiliation and suffering. And the reason is so that Jesus would become perfect through suffering. Look at verse 11. Or sorry, verse, uh, verse 10. It was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, which is God, right? In bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Should make the founder of their salvation, which we know is Jesus, perfect through suffering. Now this means perfect for the job, so to speak, as opposed to morally perfect. By way of analogy, if you were hiring a new employee, let's say you're an employer, you're hiring a new employee, you might say this candidate is perfect. Not meaning at all that this candidate is morally unblemished without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. You just simply mean that he is well suited for the job. Likewise, you might say of another candidate, he is of exemplary moral character, but he is not well suited to the job. He is not a perfect fit. Right? Something like, something like this is the sense of the word perfect in this section. There never was a time in which Jesus was morally blemished. There never was a time in which Jesus sinned and therefore had to be made morally perfect. Rather, there was a time in which Jesus would not have been such an eminently suitable high priest. Which is the way this passage goes on to develop the idea. Prior to Christ's incarnation, prior to Jesus taking to Himself a nature which was a little lower than the angels, the Son of God did not even have a human nature. The Son of God is eternally existent, but He did not always have a human nature. In the incarnation, He took to Himself our humanity and assumed our nature. Prior to that, He was the Son of God, co-equal, co-eternal, and so on and so forth. But Jesus became a man roughly 2,000 years ago. Prior to that time, the Son of God did not have a human nature. Which means that He could not have offered up a human righteousness. Of course, He was holy, holy, holy. Right? But He was not human, human, human. Right? He could not, as man, bear the penalty that man deserves for our sin. 
Now, we're familiar with Hebrews 10 where it says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, right? The logic of that passage is that it must be a human substitute, which by implication means that even the eternal Son of God had to assume human nature in order to be a sufficient propitiatory sacrifice for our sins. So prior to Christ's incarnation, the Son of God did not have a human nature and therefore was not perfectly suited for the job of being a high priest for us. So he had to humble himself and remember the first and biggest step of humility was actually just taking on a nature a little lower than the angels. So right there, that's the beginning of his humiliation and suffering. It's simply just the incarnation. And he had to be, that was a step towards him being made perfect to be a high priest, was the incarnation. And when born in Bethlehem, Jesus had a human nature, but the human capacity of a baby. To predicate of Jesus that according to his human nature, he grew and developed and became a more suitable high priest is not irreverent nor unorthodox, but is actually the assertion of Scripture here in Hebrews 2.10. This is what it means. It's not talking about Jesus becoming morally perfect. It's about Jesus becoming perfectly suited to be our high priest. And so he had to take on our human nature. And then having taken on our human nature, he had to live among us. Born of woman, right? Born under the law. As he obeyed and resisted sin and was mocked at and scoffed at for righteousness' sake and experienced the suffering of a righteous life in this world, he became a more suitable high priest. And then going to the cross was the consummate act of his priesthood, which again was necessitated suffering. So to predicate of Jesus that according to his human nature, he grew and developed and became a more suitable high priest for us is not irreverent nor unorthodox, but is actually the assertion of Scripture here in Hebrews 2.10. And the rest of this passage from 10 onward goes on to develop the idea that Christ's humility and suffering fits him for the role of high priest. There are five things in the remainder of this passage and then a conclusion drawn from them along these lines. First is that he assumed our nature. 11 says, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, in, in our ESV it says, all have one source. The footnote says, are all of one. I think, I think that the ESV really has not done well here. Frankly, almost, almost all the other translations have it otherwise. Uh, the King James and others have are all of one, which is what the Greek says. And there are some 
like the NIV, for example, which says, are all of one family, which I think maybe is a little bit better than the idea, are all of one. But I think really the worst translation of all the uh, translations that I looked at is ours, the ESV. Because it says, all have one source, therefore, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. But listen, look, even a tree has the same source, right? You know what I mean? Animals have the same source. All of creation has the same source. But Jesus doesn't call animals and vegetation brothers. So I think, I think the ESV has really supplied a, a poor sense of what is being said here. What the Greek says is, are all of one. So are all of one what? And the, the ESV speculates, and I think wrongly, all of one source. The NIV speculates are all of one family, which I think is closer to the idea because the whole point here is that we are all one family and that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. But I think the best sense of it is are all of one nature. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all of one nature. Therefore, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. After all, the whole context of this passage is the incarnation, the humility of Christ Jesus in being made a little lower than the angels. So I think what is being said here is, look, Jesus has taken to himself, the Son of God has taken to himself a nature that is a little lower than the angels. And now, as the founder of their salvation, the one who sanctifies and the one who those who are being sanctified are all of one nature. Therefore, he is not ashamed to call us brothers. He is one of us. He did not merely appear to be one of us. He is one of us. He did not temporarily take on the form of one of us as, for example, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament appeared temporarily in human form, but Jesus assumed to himself and wedded himself to human nature in the incarnation. So now he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one nature. Therefore, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Obviously implicit in what I just said is not only is he our, of our very nature, but he is our brother. Jesus it's not irreverent, you know, to say that, that Jesus has the same nature as ours. That's, a, that's exactly what the scripture says. Right? In fact, as we go on down below, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Verse 17. Jesus is of our nature. Jesus is our brother. These are the first two things that this passage goes on to say in defense of the broader thesis. Thirdly, tells us that Jesus is, by implication, the suffering messianic king, the suffering messiah king. The citation here in verse 12, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. This comes from Psalm 22, in which the king is suffering 
if we go back to that psalm, we can see clearly that it's actually not David, but it is a prophecy. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And on and on it goes. And then it says in verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. These are the words of the the suffering, persecuted, challenged, opposed king. Where there are evildoers gathering themselves together against the Lord and against His anointed to oppose Him. And we read in the Gospel accounts, we won't turn there for the sake of time, but we read Jesus citing Psalm 22 and the narrators of the Gospel accounts citing Psalm 22 in application to the crucifixion. When Jesus hung on the cross, that's when they pierced His hands and feet. And the dogs encircled Him and the wild ox and so, so on and so forth. And so Jesus has our nature. He is our brother. He is the Messiah, King, whom the kings of the earth and the rulers gather themselves together against. Fourthly, we see that He underwent death. Remember, He tasted death for everyone. And verse 14 says that He destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And it's fair to infer from what's said here that He disarmed death. He took the teeth out of the lion's mouth, so to speak. He detoothed and declawed death. Because if He didn't, then we would still be by rights, afraid of death and subject to lifelong slavery, as verse 15 says. The sense of what's going on here is that Jesus underwent death and defeated it so that we no longer have to be afraid. What does it mean here that those, there are people who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery? What were they enslaved to? By fear of death. That's a real interesting one, isn't it? It's an interesting phrase when you stop and think about it. It was their fear of death which kept them enslaved. That's the sense of it. I think think maybe, then this is not a a point of central orthodoxy, but I think maybe when people are afraid of death, they slavishly cling to mere preservation of life and never truly live. Remember... What William Wallace said in Braveheart, every man dies, but not every man truly lives. And I think think some people are so afraid of death that they are going to just slavishly seek to preserve biological existence and never actually do the things that we ought to be doing. You think, for example, of even the, the... duties of the Christian life, like evangelism. Well, what if they cut off my head? Well, what if they do? Then don't fear those who can only kill the body, but fear him who, after he has killed the body, has authority to throw into 
hell also, right? Both body and soul, right? Well, what if people at my workplace reject me? Well, what if they do, right? What if I, what if I go to church and get sick? Well, what if you do, right? Well, you know, what if this, what if that? Well, what if you do? Like, we're Christians. Jesus said, he who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. Look, we don't have to be slavishly devoted to preserving our lives. We can actually be free from the fear of death and no longer live as slaves. The fifth thing that Jesus, that this passage tells us in developing the idea of Jesus becoming made perfect as a high priest is that he underwent temptations. Look at verse 18. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So this passage tells us that Jesus assumed our nature, that he is our brother, that he is the suffering messianic king, that he underwent death, and that he underwent temptations. And that the implication in the context of the argument here is that all of these things made him perfect. Made him a perfect high priest. Verse 17 says, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Listen, what are you? A human. Alright? When you pray, when you think of God, when you think of Christ, you think, well, He doesn't know what it's like because I'm a human and He's God. Listen, He who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. Jesus, according to His humanity, knows, not just in His divine omniscience, but in His first-hand human experience, what it is to be human. So don't you tell yourself, He doesn't know. He doesn't know what it's like to be a human. He does. Secondly, He is our brother. The one who has been exalted and been given the name that is above every name, that at His name, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. He is our brother. Listen, you've got friends in high places. This is, this is better than having me a Motley's cell phone number. Alright? You've got friends in high places. You got, you got the highly exalted one, the one who was for a little while made lower than the angels, but now has been crowned with glory and honor. You got his cell phone number, so to speak. In fact, better than that, because sometimes people don't pick up their cell phones or they have it on silent or the battery's dead or whatever. But listen, his ear is always, always bent towards you. Bent towards you benevolently because he is your brother. He is the suffering messianic king. And it, this, is, this is an interesting one that this is sort of mentioned here or alluded to here. I mean, the citation tells us, of course, that he is our brother. 
and undergirds that point. And perhaps that's all that this is that Psalm 22 is being cited for is just to give us an explicit example of Jesus calling us his brothers. That's possible. But I also think I also think that it just it just further shows us that he is able to be a merciful and faithful high priest and that being the messianic king actually made him a better merciful and faithful high priest. Listen, when you are treated unjustly, how do you feel? Good? Bad? Right? Bad? (laughs) That's probably the most basic word we could use. Right? Frustrated? Right? In fact, like, depending on how severe it is, it's like, it's almost maddening. Like, you're almost losing your mind. Right? How can this be? It's so unjust. You're, like, crying out to God. Right? You're praying, and you're hoping that someone in heaven will hear your prayers of just about how unjust this is. Right? Now think about the one who's listening to your prayers. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He was anointed of God to be the ruler of the world to come. And yet what did they do? They crucified the Lord of glory. You see? The one who is listening to your prayers about injustice and about being mistreated has himself been, as a human, profoundly mistreated. So I think that the citation here of Psalm 22 is doing more than one thing. It is giving us an explicit example of Jesus calling us brothers. But it's also showing us Jesus, the one who by rights should have come and been carried around on a golden throne and just had everything laid on for him and just been adored, but instead was mocked and beaten and spit upon and crucified. It's showing us that he is able, not only because he has our same nature, but because he has experienced terrible, terrible injustice against himself, he's able to listen to our prayers with an empathetic ear. Fourthly, Jesus underwent death, right? Remember we saw that? Look, God tells us don't be afraid of death. Do not fear those who can merely kill the body. Or you might say, well, easy for you to say, God, right? Eternal, immutable, who can never die. But I'm scared. I'm just a man. Right? I'm just, I'm just a woman. I'm just a kid. You know, I'm, I'm 99 years old and it's just around the corner. Easy for you to say. Eternal one. Immutable one. But I am not eternal. I'm not infinite. I'm not immortal. I die. Ah, but the one at God's right hand says, yeah, I know what that's like. Been there, done that. I have died. Listen, none of your friends can comfort you like this high priest. Because no one can come to your bedside in the hospital and say, it's not that bad. 
I have died. <laughs> I've gone through it. You're going to be okay. But Jesus has died and is now alive forevermore. Right? Which makes him a merciful and faithful high priest. And then fifthly, look, the same thing with temptations, right? Be ye holy as I am holy, says the Lord. Well, to err is human. Right? I'm just a man. What am I supposed to do? Right? You don't know these, you don't know what it's like to have these fleshly passions. You don't know what it's like to to live in this world. You don't know what it's like to, to feel human temptation. Listen, it says right here in Hebrews 2, in verse 18, because he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus has been tempted. Jesus came and lived upon this earth and had to resist forbidden fruit of every kind. Not just literal fruit hanging from trees, but every sort of forbidden fruit you can imagine. And as a real human, not just one who appeared to be, but as a real human who took to himself our nature, who is our brother, who not only lived with all of these temptations around him, but suffered tremendously, even the injustice, we think particularly of the end of his life and the crucifixion. But consider even how his brothers went to rein him in and bring him back home for they thought he's out of his mind. Think about how at various points people tried to kill him before the appointed time. Look, when, when we're stressed out, when people are trying to kill us, when people think we're out of our minds, right? When people are gaslighting us and saying, look, we're not the crazy ones, you're crazy. Right? How do we tend to respond? With sin. But how did Jesus respond in all of these situations? Righteously. Now, I listened to John Piper a number of years ago talking about how some people say, well, he hasn't really experienced the depth of temptation that I have because he was holy. And Piper was making the point that he's actually experienced it more because he's holy. Because what happens when you resist for one second? Does the temptation feel stronger or lesser at, two, at the two-second one? Right? And if you resist for 30 seconds, then often the temptation gets stronger at the one-minute mark. And if you resist for five minutes, then the thought lingers and circles around and swirls around and two days later, there you are, doing whatever it is that you thought you shouldn't do in the first place. Because as we resist, there's this, there's this accumulation and this, this exponential feeling of temptation that often grows. And one thing is added to another and so on and so forth. And we often, our sins often feel like the release of a pressure valve, if you will. But with Jesus, He never sinned. And so there never was, there never was that... There never was that giving in. And so whatever pressure you might feel, like 
as you resist temptation, whatever degree you think that might be at, the degree that Jesus experienced that temptation at was much higher. And you might yield a little bit, which eases some of the pressure that you might feel, compromise a little bit with your sin, but Jesus never did. So Jesus, He who sanctifies and we who are sanctified are all of one. And Jesus is our brother. Jesus has suffered great injustice as the Messianic King. And Jesus underwent death. And Jesus underwent temptation. And so this passage tells us that Jesus is a faithful high priest to taste death for everyone. And to make propitiation. And it was necessary that He be humbled to take on a nature that was lower than the angels. And be obedient to death on the cross to do that. This passage affirms that. And this passage goes on to say that Jesus, because He has suffered and taken on a nature which is lower than the angels and been obedient to death, even death on the cross, not only is He a faithful high priest, but He's also merciful, as verse 17 says. He's one of us. He's our brother. He's a king who has suffered and bids us follow only where He has already gone. And He intercedes and helps us to do so. Which is why we can look to Him for help when being tempted. As verse 18 says, Jesus knows what it's like to live in this sin-cursed world and to live under the constant shadow of death and have loved ones die all around you and know that your death is impending. Jesus has been there done that. And Jesus has been subject to all the various temptations that we face here. Let us therefore trust Jesus, yeah, to be our propitiation, to taste death in our place, that we might not have to taste it. But let us also trust Jesus for help in this life when we are being tempted. Jesus is able to help those who are being tempted because He is a faithful and merciful High Priest who has been made perfect for that role by what he has undergone and experienced.